Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of The Package Tourist, hosted by yours truly, The Package Tourist and the Magical Mystery Tour Call Life, Matthew DBI's. Tonight's guest is author Jeffrey D. Simon. Jeffrey Simon is the author of several books about terrorism and is a former RAND analyst who also taught at UCLA. His writings have appeared in many publications, including the Journal of American Medical Association, Foreign Policy, and the New York Times. He has also been interviewed by several media outlets, including CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, CBS Sunday Morning, NPR, New York Times, Washington Post, and Los Angeles Times. You can also find him at futureterrorism.com. Jeffrey has written three critically acclaimed works on terrorism, The Alphabet Bomber, Lone Wolf Terrorism, and The Terrorist Trap. But tonight, we will be discussing his fourth book, which was released today, The Bulldog Detective. William J. Flynn and America's First War Against the Mafia, Spies, and Terrorists. Jeffrey, welcome back to the show. It's, a, it's always an honor and privilege to have you here. I'd like to start off the show by asking you, what led you to write about William Flynn and his war on the mafia and also his war against foreign spies and terrorists? First of all, thank you for having me. It's always great to be on your show. Um, I had written a, a book where Flynn appeared in terms of what he was doing to combat uh, anarchist terrorists during the 1919-20 period. But I thought, you know, he's such an interesting character and there's probably so much more to his story. I did a little more research. I found there really hasn't been any biography of him. And yet he had such an incredible, extensive career in government. And he was just really a remarkable man. So once I found out that there hadn't been a biography. My next task was to cite, am I going to get enough information to write, you know, an 80 to 100,000 word book about this man? So through the magic of the internet, I was able to track down his grandson, who provided me with some wonderful anecdotes, some photos. And then I found out that Flynn himself was a prolific writer. Ooh. He published his own, uh, not really memoirs, but he wrote about his own um, life, and he was always written about in the media. So I figured I'm going to have enough information, and that got me started. Now, what what federal agency did Flynn work for? His main career was with the U.S. Secret Service. Ooh. Probably out of his 20, 25 years of government service, that was like 80 to 90 percent of his time. He always, as a boy, wanted to be a Secret Service agent. Um, he had to quit school when he was 15 after his father died, and he had odd jobs such as a, he was a tinsmith, uh, he, he was a pl actually a semi-professional baseball player, but he also was a plumber, and he, and he built a successful plumbing business in New York, but he wasn't really ever into money. He just wanted to serve the government, serve the country, and he was just enthralled with the Secret Service. So he got a job in 1897 with the New York office of the Secret Service. Okay, now let's talk about his war against the American Mafia. Now this is the pre-commission era. Okay, when Flynn was fighting against the American Mafia, what you talk about what was the first Mafia family in America. Okay, what, what, what was it? Who was the boss and where were these people located? The boss was Giuseppe Morello and his main associate was Ignacio Lupo. And Lupo married into Morello's uh, real family. Now, the Morello-Lupo gang, their activities were mainly 
counterfeiting, extortion, murder. What they would do is called black hand letters. They would target wealthy Italian merchants in Little Italy and give them, you know, send them a letter saying, pay or die. If you do not give us money, we're either going to blow up your shop, we're going to kill you, or we're going to kidnap your children. And that's what they did. Now, Flynn, because the Secret Service, their main function, in those days it really wasn't as much protecting presidents as it was going after counterfeiters. Mm. So it turned out that the Morello Lupo gang were major players in the counterfeiting business. And that gave uh, Flynn his you know, way to be able to go after them. Now, they were responsible, the Morello Lupo gang, for one of the most grisly murders of that time. Uh, in 1903, a barrel in the heart of New York was discovered. People were walking by there and they saw a body sticking out of it. And it was so gruesome that it stood out among other murders. It was called a barrel murder mystery. And Flynn had had the Morello Lupo gang under surveillance for counterfeiting, and he knew that they were responsible for this murder because they saw the victim with them uh, the night before the murder. But he really couldn't do anything because if he brought in parts of their gang, there was this, you know, Sicilian code of never talking, never telling. Everybody was afraid to talk on the gang. So basically, he was at his, you know, wit's end to try to find, you know, the evidence. And he was eventually able to find this uh, nine years later in terms of counterfeiting. So that's how he brought them down on a major counterfeiting charge where the judge in the case gave Morello and Lupo long sentences in prison, 25 to 30 years. And basically, it almost was not so much for the counterfeiting, they didn't admit it, but it's really for, you know, their murders. Okay. So this is before the RICO statute, which came out in 1970. So basically, Flynn was using counterfeiting laws, you know, counterfeiting, federal counterfeiting laws to go after these guys. Is that what the legal uh, weapons he was using? Oh, yeah. And, you know, trying to always find somebody within the gang who would be able to tell, you know, on, on the counterfeiters. But even if he knew that they were engaged in counterfeiting, it was still hard to get the concrete evidence. So what he always wanted was somebody within their gang who he could arrest and was willing to talk, you know, to cooperate. And nobody ever would until one time uh, he, he arrested a whole bunch of, you know, members of the gang. And one of the members had sort of been coerced into working with Morello Lupo. So he was really angry with them. But his moniker, his name was Kamiko the Sheep. So Flynn was like worried, you know, this man may be too timid to go after Morello and Lupo. But in the court, he testified, you know, like a lion. And he was really responsible for bringing them down. And what's interesting, when the judge gave the sentences to Morello and Lupo, they both broke down and cried. They fainted. Morello had to be carried out of the courtroom. So it kind of really demystified, you know, the myth of these powerful mafiosos. Okay. Um, a question. Oh, did At any time, did the uh, Lupo, uh, the Morello Lupo gang, did they try to retaliate against Flynn personally? I mean, try to strike, uh, try to strike at him? Or was the back, even then, there was a reluctance among mafiosos to attack, to attack police? Because I know when the commission was established, you really couldn't go after cops. But was there any attempt against Flynn or his uh, and his uh, and his fellow police uh, sacred service agents. Yeah, after after they were sentenced to their prison term, they tried. There was talk about trying to kidnap Flynn's uh, children, uh, but they they didn't follow through on it. They just figured you know that would be counterproductive. But there, there's an interesting side story to all this. 
Well, Flynn was going after the mafia. So too was a New York policeman by the name of Joseph Petrosino. Now, Petrosino was as dedicated as Flynn was to bringing down the Morello Grupo gang, and he tried to also find the evidence against them. In 1910, he was sent to Sicily on a secret mission to try to get evidence against the Morello Grupo gang, and also to try to find out who among the Italians there had criminal records, because if there were Italians with a criminal record that had come to the U.S., they could be deported. So he's trying to create a certain you know, intelligence network over in Sicily, but he was assassinated by associates of Morello Lupo, and he was given one of the biggest uh, funerals in New York history. Okay, let's go now to Flynn's work against German uh, espionage uh, before, uh, before America entered World War One. Uh, okay, let's set the stage. How extensive was, we're talking Imperial Germany now, uh, listeners, uh, not Nazi Germany. This is World War One. This is Imperial Germany with the Kaiser. How extensive was Imperial Germany spy networks in America? It's very extensive. The center of activity, the base, was in New York. Because New York was sort of the center then of uh, almost foreign intrigue. A lot of diplomats and other spies were operating right in, in, in the heart of New York. Now, what the Germans had was a, a German attaché, um, the commercial attaché, his name was Dr. Heinrich Albert, and he had a $27 million budget to control pro-German propaganda attacks on ships carrying war supplies for the Allies, strikes at docks, and in munition plants. And what's interesting is we, the U.S. didn't have evidence of this plan until Flynn went after the, the Germans. Now, the Secret Service was not really a counter-espionage uh, you know, unit, but he formed one because President Wilson wanted to really find out what the Germans were up to. So he said to the Treasury Secretary, the Secret Service was under the Treasury Department in those days, now it's under Homeland Security, he said, you know, find out what they're up to. So Flynn formed a 11-man counter-espionage unit, and he put his best man in charge. His name was Frank Burke. So they're looking at all the Germans after the New York, trying to find out you know, what is happening. And one day, they see a, an American who was a propagandist for the Germans. He was being paid by them, and he was running a newspaper. And they saw him walk into a building, and when he came out, he was with a very well-dressed, man carrying a briefcase. And Burke figured, you know, this may be somebody important, and let me, let's follow them and see what, what's going on. So they followed them up on a elevated train, it's an L train in New York that was going up Fifth Avenue. And Burke is looking at that man with the briefcase, and when it comes to Cynthia Street, the train stop, the Albert, who was carrying the briefcase, panics because he's going to miss a stop. So he runs out the door saying, hold the door, hold the door, forgetting his briefcase. He leaves it right on his seat. So Burke quickly snatches it, runs out of the train, and now it's trying to avoid being seen by Alpert. But Alpert sees him down in the street and chases after him. So we have this scene in New York where a German agent is, is you know, chasing after a Secret Service agent. So Burke jumped on a streetcar, and tells the conductor, look, you see that crazy man running down the street waving his hands because that's what Albert was doing. He created a scene on the subway. Keep the car going. You don't want to put any problems. 
So he got away from Albert. He then calls Flynn. Flynn meets uh, Burke, and they look at the briefcase, and they see all these documents and all this material regarding their plans for sabotage and propaganda. Now, the Secret Service couldn't admit that they stole the briefcase, because that may cause a diplomatic uproar or whatever. So what they did was they leaked it to a New York newspaper, who then for three days exposed the whole German network. And now, as this was 1915, so American public opinion awareness was now raised in terms of what the Germans were up to. And this was considered one of the greatest you know, counter-espionage beats in U.S. history. What New York paper? New York's paper was it? Was it the Times, the Herald Tribune, no, no. The, the Journal? No, it was called the New York New York World. That was the name of it. Was oh, that Pulitzer? Was that Pulitzer? The New York World. No, I don't. I don't know. Uh, I don't think it was. It might have been. But I have to check on that. Yeah, I think it was because uh, Hearst was the journal. Hearst was the journal. Okay. okay? okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think it was Pulitzer then. Yeah, okay. Or yeah, it used to be or something like that. Let's get back to the spies now. Now, what types of acts of sabotage were these German spies engaging in before America and the world? Can you give a couple examples? Um, yeah. Uh, first, you know, they tried putting uh, bombs uh, under the rudders of ships so that once mm. the ships were, you know, carrying supplies to allies, it would, at a certain point, uh, explode. And you know, and it'd be all the evidence would be destroyed at sea. But their major operation, their biggest operation, took place in 1916 in July, when you know the German agents they set off an explosion at the loading terminals on Black Tom Island, which yes. is in New York Harbor. Yeah. And at that time, there were nearly 70 freight cars loaded with two million pounds of munitions, you know, said to be sent to ship to to Europe. And there was a nearby barge that contained 100,000 pounds of dynamite. So this group of sabotage placed explosives on the barge and on the freight cars that created a fire and it caused the entire barge with the dynamite to blow up. Now this explosion blocked nearby neighborhoods and it was, a little, it was equivalent of an earthquake measuring up to 5.5 on the Richter scale. Now there was a low death toll, uh, minimum five people were killed, but $20 million of damages were caused. And it was things like this that they were engaged in, and including a major propaganda campaign to try to you know, slant American public opinion on the side of the Germans and away from the bridge. Now, these German agents, were they mostly outsiders from Germany trying to penetrate the United States, or were they able to recruit within American citizens you know, to, uh, to act on their behalf? What were these agents like? Yeah. They, they were, first they came over as, as diplomats. They were, um, Albert was basically the commercial attaché. There was a military attaché involved. The ambassador was involved. And then, yeah, they would recruit, um, they recruit, you know, German Americans. They recruit Americans. They had money to pay. So this whole network was basically a combination of both, you know, the Americans and more Germans that they would try to, you know, bring into the U.S., you know, to cause the sabotage. Okay, let's get in now Flynn's uh, war against terrorism here. Now, when you talk about terrorists, I mean, wh who were these people? What was their cause? Were they anarchists or were they communists or were they fascists? Or wh what were these terrorists representing? It was anarchists. And it was the Italian anarchists that were the most militant, but there was one group in particular, and this was called the Galliani. Yes. And they were under uh, the leadership of Luigi Galliani. And they were, you know, 
huge anarchists in terms of they didn't believe in any government, you know, government, you know, without any institutions. And so they had basically created a war against all American institutions and targeting high-profile uh, government officials. In 1919, in May, April, end, of, end of April, beginning of May, 30 package bombs were sent across the country. One was sent to Attorney General A. Mitchell Palmer, others were sent to police commissioners, and in these package bombs, it was cleverly wrapped like in a gimbal department store novelty uh, box and trying to trick the people to open it. Now, there was only a minimum amount of casualties there. Some of the packages never got out of the post office because there wasn't enough postage. But this caused an uproar in the country, figuring, wow, we are now being targeted you know, by, uh, by terrorists. And then a week later, yeah, sorry, not a week later, but about a month later on June 2nd, nine bombs went off in seven cities, including one where the anarchists who remember the Gallianis walked up the steps of Attorney General Palmer's home and tripped, and the bomb went off. You can imagine there was no security in those days. Jeez. And so this, if this happened today, you know, nine bombs in, in seven cities, uh, it was a total chaos. Yeah. So this sort of led to this war now against terrorism. Now, Flynn no longer was with the Secret Service then. Uh, he was now hired by A. Mitchell Palmer to lead the Bureau of Investigation, which was the forerunner of the FBI. Mm. So up until that time, there hadn't ever been any kind of terrorism like this, you know, with the local terrorism, and that would mainly be where they would have to um, go after what was happening in each city, a police uh, commissioner of that city would sort of investigate. Now, Flynn had to figure out how do we go across the whole country and start to investigate. And they, he put together a team, got cooperation from, or tried to get cooperation from other agencies, and they got enough evidence where they were certain it was the Gallianis. But Galliani himself, in a kind of a poor decision by the U.S., was deported to Italy, which meant once he was deported, any future acts by this group, we wouldn't really be able to get information you know, from Galliani or hopefully be able to see uh, if we can intercept you know, any communication. So what happened was as the investigation into the bombings continued for a year, year and a half, there were few arrests here and there, but you know, Galliani, there was no clear-cut evidence that they can use to you know, pinpoint him. On September 16th, 1920, the Wall Street bombing occurred. Mm. And that is where a bomb hidden in a horse-drawn wagon exploded on Wall Street, killing 38 people. It was the most devastating terrorist attack at that time. Yeah. Now, what happened was because Galliani was in Italy, you know, we couldn't interrogate him. So, again, it, it, it's almost consensus that Italian anarchists were involved because the same kind of propaganda message was left at the scene, the same kind of sign that called of the anarchist fighters and names like that. But that bombing to this day is still unsolved, although most historians, myself included, believe that Mario Buda, who was one of the more militant among the Galeatis, you know, was responsible for that attack. Now what's interesting is because this attack occurred in Wall Street, right near the Wall the P. Morgan Bank, you know, the business community didn't like this, right? It's not good for business to have terrorism. So that night, they wanted to clean up any 
signs of you know disruption. You know, they wanted business to continue the next day. So they hired cleaning crews that came in and basically destroyed all the evidence as they yeah. tried to clean up. Uh. And it was just it was incredible. Uh. You know, you can imagine today after the bombing, you know, a cleaning crew comes in and takes all this evidence. But uh, so Flint Flint went after you know the terrorists and yeah, it's just an incredible career where he has all these exploits, you know, with the Secret Service and with the Bureau of Investigation. And then what's interesting is he was forced out of the Bureau of Investigation. Uh, William J. Burns, who's with the Burns Detective Agency, you know, basically undermined Flynn all along in investigations, but he became the uh, director in 1921. And in 1924, J. Edgar Hoover became the director. But Flynn was expecting after he was ousted, well, you know, the government will call again. I'll, I'll probably get a job somewhere. But nobody really called, and it really kind of depressed him. But he was very entrepreneurial and very clever. So he formed his own detective agency, but he had family trouble. Uh, a lot of his family members were alcoholics, and he trusted them with the business, and it didn't work out. But he did have a very successful magazine. It was called Flynn and the most popular detective magazine of its time. Mm. And it actually lasted for about 20, 30 years, even after his death. So one of the interesting things I discovered in my research was that one of the writers that he discovered, that he published in his magazine, was Agatha Christie, you know, the famous... Mm. Uh, yeah. And he thought he'd write and Christie said, yeah, let's give this you know, young writer a chance. And she wrote a story that was called... Um, but the Flynn Magazine, I think it was called A Trader's Heart, but Christie, as years went on, revised it, changed it, and it became witness for the prosecution, <laughs> which is a famous play and a famous movie. Yeah. And, and Flynn, yeah, and Flynn also uh, created movies about, there were movies made about Flynn, uh, about his exploits against the Germans, it was called The Eagle's Eye, he wrote a book about it. He, he knew how to use the media, but basically, he was incorruptible. He wasn't after money, he was after fame in terms of his own image and everything, but he never really played the political game. He probably didn't know how to do it, and maybe that's one of the reasons he, he was never involved in any corruption like William J. Burns was. Then, you know, looking at Flynn's photograph, he looks like a very large, beefy man. I mean, can you describe uh, his... Yeah. To say, to say the least, I mean, he's, three, he's 300 pounds. Wow. And, you know, the cover, the, fig, the uh, photo I have on the cover of the book, I mean, I just love it because... Yeah, he has this big jacket on and, and a bath is, it almost looks like maybe there's a racing form in his pocket and he's just striding along. He looks for, you know, your listeners who remember what Orson Welles looked like. Yeah, that's exactly, yeah. That's exactly what, what, what he looks like. And, um, yeah, he just kept putting on weight, but uh, it didn't stop him, you know, from his activities. But, uh, and he got the name Bulldog because of his tenacity. Yeah. Uh, basically, would never leave a case alone, just like with the Morello Lupo gang. He would stay at it no matter how long it took. He called it steady hammering. I would just keep at it, you know, until I solved it or until the culprits were dead. So uh, that's where the Buddha comes from. Jeffrey, please tell our listeners where can they find this book. Hopefully, in all your bookstores, uh, it should be there because today is the official launch day of the book. Definitely on Amazon. Barnes and Noble, uh, the publisher is Roman and Littlefield. Uh, Prometheus is an imprint of them, but definitely your bookstores, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, should be no problem at all. 
Jeff, do you have any idea what your next book project will be and when can we expect its release? I don't have any idea yet because I've been so involved with, you know, this book took about three years in terms of research and yeah. writing. And even though I finished the manuscript uh, about eight, nine months ago, you know, there's all the editing that goes through afterwards and dealing, you know, with the trying to get promotion. So I haven't yet sat down to think what it would be, but I'll let you know. You know, I basically want to come up again with something that either hasn't been done before or if it has, I, you know, I could try to do it somewhat different and to be a story that you know your readers would really be interested in well jeff let me know when it when you finally come up with it and it's ready to release let me know i want you on my show again okay oh i'd love to thank you so much man. and jeff be safe in this day and age please be safe okay you too okay you take care god bless you thank you okay bye-bye bye. Stay tuned, ladies and gentlemen, for next week's show where I will be interviewing author Allie Riley. Thank you and good night.